As you might expect, there are very important foundational themes found early in the chapters of Genesis. And they gain momentum as God's story of redemption unfolds. So when you note these very foundational themes, pay close attention to them. God is, is front-loading, as it were, very important themes that He wants us to understand and that will develop throughout the rest of Scripture. For example, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Genesis 2. Not concealed from one another, but revealed without any cover. No need to flee. No need to hide. Only to enjoy the glorious liberty of the children of God. Then, Genesis chapter 3, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they made coverings for themselves. Where are you? says the Lord to Adam. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And there it is. The very first instance of fear in the Bible, and in response to what? Shame. And this fear of shame gains momentum. Over and over and over again, as I read through the Psalms, I'm struck by the same phrase. Let me not be put to shame. The fear of shame. I fear shame. We fear disgrace. What about you? As the Lord gives opportunity, I'm seeking to uh, pick a particular and very common struggle in the human experience. And tonight I want us to focus on the topic of shame. And my aim this evening is that we might glorify God by connecting the riches of Jesus Christ to the realities of shame. One resource, by the way, that you might uh, be interested in uh, pursuing is written by one of my professors and uh, uh, have great esteem for Ed Welch. He wrote a book called Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. And so since we can't say everything this evening and can only say a few things, I encourage you to uh, take a look at that resource and you'll find great wisdom. Before we jump into the text, let me just orient us a few minutes to the topic. First of all, a definition of shame. Theologian Andre Blosher says, it's the fear of an alien look, a feeling of embarrassment which makes us hide. Ed Welch writes, shame is a deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did or something that was done to you, or something that is associated with you. Let's distinguish shame from guilt. Guilt is a reality that's related to the courtroom. There, in the courtroom, only one gaze matters, the judge. And biblically speaking, because we have broken God's law, in the courtroom, in God's courtroom, we are legally guilty before God, and we need desperately His forgiveness. 
But shame is an experience, a reality that is related to the public square, beyond the courtroom. Eyes are staring at you, or so it seems. Eyes are turning from you. It's, we might say, a broader category than the biblical category of guilt. Guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong. In Scripture, at least three images capture the experience. There's the category of the naked, a sense of being seen, of being exposed. It's as if I'm wearing a neon sign and everyone can see me. Or there's the category of the outcast, a sense of rejection. I am not acceptable. They belong, but I don't. And then there's the biblical category of the unclean, a sense of contamination. I am dirty. So with these definitions and distinctions in mind, consider with me how the riches of Christ connect to the reality of human shame in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 through 10. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear, break forth into singing, and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations, and will be people in the desolate cities." Fear not, you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall never depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Let's pray. This is your word, and we're grateful that you speak this truth to us in love. And we're grateful that you give the Holy Spirit to work together with your word 
And we pray that you would do so, that you would open the eyes of our hearts in order that we might see the hope to which we have been called, that we might see the inheritance that you have made us to be in Christ, and that we might see the power that breaks the chains of shame. Through Jesus we pray, amen. First of all, God sees and understands your shame. There's a phrase in verse 1 that captures your experience. Secondly, God speaks words of hope to you in love in verses 1 through 5. And finally, God comes near and He binds Himself to you forever. Verses 6 through 10. Consider with me. God sees and understands your shame. The Bible works like a mirror in some ways. It helps you to see yourself clearly. And in verse 1, did you notice the phrase, the barren one? That's me. That's you. Scripture enables us to see ourselves clearly outside of Christ. The barren one. The barren woman. In that day, you imaged God by bearing children. Blessing and honor were represented especially in terms of having children. And so, barrenness was one of the most severe conditions and images of shame and hopelessness in that day. I'll never forget, I can still see it in my mind's eye, I was probably 13, and I'm pitching, and everybody's watching, and I cannot deliver a strike to save my life. I'm hitting batters, I'm outside the zone, and I'm walking batters one after another, after another, after another. I can still see people in the stands just rolling their eyes at me as I walked in runs because I couldn't throw a strike. It was one of my earliest remembrances of what it felt like to be ashamed. Something's wrong with me. I can't throw a strike. What is wrong with me? And everybody sees it. Can you relate? Have you ever walked into a room and it's as though everyone's looking at you and turning their eyes away from you? In the ancient Near East, a capital city was personified as a woman married to her god, her husband. And when the city was overthrown, its people were sent into exile, and the city was considered a barren woman, rejected by her husband, God. But of course, the biblical background here is that after their exodus from Egypt, Israel was bound to the Lord in a marriage covenant, but Israel proved herself to be unfaithful. In Isaiah's day, Judah, 
The tribe of Judah turned from the Lord to the Babylonians for safety and they sought to form an alliance. That is to say, they broke covenant with the Lord. They committed adultery, spiritually speaking. And consequently, Israel was forsaken by the Lord and given over to Babylonian captivity. And Jerusalem was overthrown. And her people were deported. And the city, the text says, was like a barren woman. An image of shame and hopelessness. Can you imagine this woman's horror? Can you imagine this woman's humiliation? Voices whisper inside of you, forsaken. Circumstances all around you shout, hopeless. Everything inside of you and everything outside of you says, shameful. Are you beginning to see yourself in the mirror of this barren woman? The Scripture makes proper sense of our lives. And remember the senses of shame, naked, a sense of being seen by others, of being exposed, outcast, a sense of rejection, I'm not acceptable, unclean, a sense of contamination, I'm dirty. But why this experience? This is where Ed Welch has been so helpful to me. The sources of shame. Shame from something you did or something you do. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a scandal from the past. Maybe it's a scandal in the present. I suppose we could fill in the blanks with all kinds of examples. Whatever it is, it's something that we wish we could hide. Shame from something I did. But secondly, shame from something done to you. Because the double trouble that we face is not only the situational evil outside of us, but also the moral evil within us that spills over and does things but we also want to take into view the situational evils that press against us. A sexual violation. An unfaithful spouse. Words of criticism over and over and over. Being treated like an object. Being on the receiving end of outbursts of anger that, that outweigh all of the apologies rejection or neglect, or maybe it's a noticeable difference of some sort, maybe physically. Maybe there's just a difference about you physically, and it can occasion a sense of shame. Or maybe it's a noticeable difference in terms of, 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 of finances. It can occasion shame. Maybe you've had to file for bankruptcy. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've been forced to rely on the generosity of others. Maybe it's been a racial slur spoken to you. A careless moment. An innocent joke. Maybe you were not the favored child. 
Maybe it was an absent parent. Something around you that presses against you, done to you, can be the occasion for real shame. And then finally, shame associated, or shame from, from something being associated with you. Maybe it was an event in your family, maybe a suicide, maybe, maybe poverty, maybe a public failure, maybe someone in prison. But there's an association, a connection with you. Can you identify with the human reality of shame? If you can, I've got really good news for you. We are exactly the kind of person that Jesus sees and understands and moves toward. And you can bet if Jesus identifies a struggle in his word, he's going to move close to you to do something about it because that's who he is and that's what he does. First of all, God sees and understands your shame. But secondly, God speaks words of hope to you in love. And you see this unfold in verses 1 through 5. There are three calls, three invitations. God bids you to come. And each call has solid reasons undergirding it. First, sing for joy. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. Why? Because the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Isaiah calling attention to the supernatural birth of God's people. Remember Sarah in the shame of her barrenness. And the Lord comes near and speaks tenderly. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And the story unfolds. And supernatural birth out of the deadness of Sarah's womb comes the child of promise. Supernatural birth. Joy. Sing for joy. Secondly, Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. Why? Because you will spread out to the right and to the left. And the promise to Abraham is reiterated. Your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Supernatural growth of God's people. Third, fear not. Why? Because you will not be ashamed. I promise you, you will not be disgraced. I promise you, you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. It's a picture of this supernatural confidence of God's people. You can face the future with supernatural fearlessness. Fear not. And those are a lot of good reasons. Sing for joy. Spread your tent. Fear no more. But there's a deeper reason beneath all the reasons. There is a person who gives himself to you. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. 
The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of all the earth He is called. The Bible not only functions sometimes as a mirror, but it also functions as a portrait, a picture. And in these verses, God is portrayed in living color, His character. Multiple titles converge to underline important truths. On the one hand, Maker, Lord of hosts, God of all the earth. Do you hear the point? He's the Mighty One. These titles highlight the strength of His arm. No foe can prevail against His indomitable strength. But on the other hand, He's your husband. He's the Holy One. He's your Redeemer. Do you hear the point? He's the Merciful One. These titles highlight the strength of His heart. There is no shame too great for His invincible love. You hear the big idea? This person, this mighty and merciful person is yours. Your husband. And why does this matter? It matters exactly because of this. We are identified by our associations, by our relational connections. An association with sin, whether sin done by me or sin done to me, brings contamination and shame. But an association, a connection with God brings purification and honor. Think of it this way. Pastor Dale is leading us through the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Look for these biblical categories as the chapters unfold. There's the category of the clean. Can you imagine? This is getting hard for me to imagine the older I get. Waking up and walking out with no physical aches and pains. Well, think about what that might be like spiritually. Waking up and walking out with no spiritual aches and pains. The clean. But then there's secondly the biblical category of the unclean. From something I've done or something done to me. Now here's the million dollar question. How does the unclean become clean? Not by the unclean coming into contact with the clean, because the clean doesn't have the power to purify the unclean. And how do we know this? When the clean comes into contact with the unclean, the unclean always contaminates the clean. But there's a third category. The holy. The Holy One of Israel. And the Holy One of Israel is the only one who can purify the unclean. You recall Isaiah's vision. He sees the Lord 
seated on his throne and he hears angelic creatures calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty. And Isaiah responds, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people with unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then he reports, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. The Holy One is the only one who can touch and purify the unclean in their shame. And this Holy One is your husband. God binds Himself to you. He comes near and touches you in Christ. And this new bond breaks the old bond. His Holy Spirit purifies the unclean. And no other religion on earth can say this. No other therapy in town can do this. Only Christianity. Because it's not about what you do, it's about who you are connected to. It's all about your association. The Holy One is your husband. How can this be? Thirdly, and finally, God comes near and He binds Himself to you forever. Verses 6-10, through 10, For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer." Wonder of wonders, the Lord who was rejected by Israel as her husband is the Lord who resolves to renew the marriage covenant. He is the God who will bring you back. And how can that be? In this second half of the book of Isaiah, a servant comes into view. The one will represent the many. And he will take upon himself your shame. This servant's work especially comes into focus the chapter preceding this one. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace fell upon him. With his wounds we are healed. Back to Isaiah's word here, 
Did you notice verse 7? For a brief moment, I deserted you. Verse 8, in overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face. When did God reject and forsake His people? Well, in one sense, in one sense, when judgment fell on Jerusalem and her people were cast out to Babylon. But this was only a foretaste of things to come. God's ultimate rejection came on Friday when He crushed His servant on the cross. And there you were on that sad day, united with Christ in His death, rejected. But wait, the promise still stands. The Lord will call you back. Notice the text, verse 7 and 8, with great compassion, I will gather you. With everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. When did God welcome home and restore His people? In one sense, when a faithful remnant of God's people returned from exile to Jerusalem, but that was just a foretaste of things to come. God's ultimate welcome came on Sunday when He raised His servant from the dead, and there you were on that glad day, united with Christ in His resurrection, accepted and welcomed home. Do you see? The result of the servant's work is this new covenant reunited and unashamed. The Holy One is your husband who breaks the old bond of shame and forms the new bond of honor. But I've got to still give you a little bit more good news. How strong is this new bond? How long will this marriage covenant last? This is like the days of Noah to me, says the Lord. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. You remember the promise? The rainbow that God gave as a sign pointing to His promise? It was a warrior's bow. And you remember the direction in which that bow pointed? Not toward the earth, but toward the heavens. As if to say, if I must once again bend my bow and fire my arrow of judgment, then it will not strike you. It will strike my servant. And strike him it did. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By His wounds we are healed. And so the servant's work is all completed. God's wrath has been propitiated, quenched in the death of Jesus. So verse 9 and 10, 
So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love will not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Not war, but peace forever. Not anger, but love forever. An unswerving, never-ending marriage covenant in Christ. The one and only relationship that can expel your shame and instill true honor. And this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He connects His riches to the realities of our shame. Let's pray. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. And it's all true, Father. This was your plan. Our Lord Jesus has accomplished. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who comes near to connect his riches to the realities of our shame. I pray for people like me who get tripped up and trapped in shame at Harvest Church that you would use this word to set the captives free this is who you are this is what you do this is what you say and we thank you in Jesus name Amen would you stand with me as we conclude our worship and sing together? Be unto your name.